inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and we talk about all things mental health over here. So if you're new, Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Without further ado, let's jump into today's questions. We have 10. And if you're new, I gather the questions from the community tab on my YouTube channel. So just go to opinions that don't matter on YouTube. You click on the channel itself, go to the community tab. There's also like an about tab videos. You'll see it. Look for community. Click there on Sundays. I send out a message asking you for your questions. And before I jump into today's questions, actually, I want to remind all of you, that I have hosted a inner child workshop. It was live on August 12th and the 19th. And if you'd like to join the last one live, you're more than welcome. But the recorded versions are available on my website. You can go over to katiemorton.com, click on the shop, and you can access the inner child workshop. My goal is really just to help people better understand inner child work and how it's affecting us today. Essentially, like how the, the things that we've gone through as children or just younger versions of us, how those are affecting our relationships and our lives now, and what we can do to heal from that so that we don't continue those patterns or, you know, continue getting into what I would call like unhealthy or unhelpful relationships. So you can head over there and purchase it now. Okay. And with that, let's jump into question number one. This question says, hi, Katie, I know it's impossible to process trauma while still in an unsafe environment. For example, still living at home, bullying at work and people dying, just to name a few. And my therapist decided to put a pause on any processing type work. She said she wants to stabilize me for the next couple of years until I can leave this environment. Does this mean therapy will take a very long time? Is there any benefit to doing therapy now, or would it be better to wait until I can actually process stuff? And in parentheses, it says, just to save on cost. Okay. I have a lot of thoughts about this. Now, the first is, yes, it is, it's impossible to process trauma while we're still in an unsafe environment and possibly still being traumatized. It's not safe. And that's why if anybody's wondering why that's not true, it's because in order to process trauma, we have to be able to get to some kind of like safe or neutral space because a lot's going to come up and we need to be okay in the meantime, because for those of you who are doing the trauma work, you know that you do that work in therapy and that whole rest of the week, you can kind of feel more vulnerable than you might otherwise be. And if we're continuing to be traumatized, it's like, I don't even know. It'd be like, what's a good example? It's like trying to fight the waves at the ocean (laughs) where you're like, if I just stand here and block this, I'll start to block it all. And, but you can't, it's like an effort and futility essentially. And so until we're able to leave the environment, we're not going to be able to do that deep processing work. Now, the questions here are, does this mean that therapy is going to take a very long time? Not necessarily. The amount of time we spend in therapy kind of, it has a lot to do with us. And what I mean by that is as the patient, we're going to have different levels of resilience, meaning how how easy it is for us to talk about what we need to talk about, and stay present while we do that and do the hard work. Because I'm not going to lie, therapy is a lot of fucking hard work. Changing the way that we navigate our life and the way that we engage with other people, I, I think maybe it can sound like it's going to be simple, but it's it's not, right? We're trying to break old patterns. And so we're going to have that urge to do it the way we've always done it, even though we don't want to keep doing it that way. And so depending on our amount of resources, our uh 
level of resilience or window of tolerance, some people will call it. It's like our ability to stay present. And even just the amount of like time and energy as a whole we can put into this, that that's all going to factor into how long therapy is going to take. And is there a benefit to doing therapy now? There is always a benefit to doing therapy. At the very least, you have that safe space to talk about what's happening in your life, a place to vent, and to get some tools and techniques for managing now. I agree with your therapist. Doing any kind of processing work is is just not going to be beneficial. Like I said, it's like trying to stand and block some of the ocean, thinking that you're going to be able to stop the waves from crashing. You can't. And so I don't think that that's going to be helpful. I think that would be a waste of your time and money. But if you're finding benefit from going to therapy, if it's helpful to get that support, because you're in, it sounds like a very unsafe and shitty environment, right? And so you're going to possibly really rely on that time and that space to maybe cry if we need to, vent about what's going on, and just get some validation and support. Therapy doesn't always have to be like this intensive work. Some parts of therapy is just having that space to go to and like dump all the stuff that you haven't been able to otherwise offload in your life. Meaning, Maybe we don't have a relationship in our life where we feel safe to talk about how we feel or to express what's upsetting us. And so therapy can be that first safe place to do that. And I think it can be really healing in and of itself. So I don't think that it's a waste. I do think there are tons of benefits to continuing to go now. But if the cost is too high of a burden, you can see if your therapist will work on a sliding scale or maybe until you're ready to do the processing type work, you go every other week. You can negotiate with your therapist and see what works for you. But I definitely think we all can benefit from therapy no matter what's going on. I honestly think all of us should be in therapy because we all need that place to just go and vent and get support and validation. Because too often we just go through life, and I'm just as guilty as you. I'm not saying that you do it and I don't, but we can go through life kind of like on autopilot, just going through the motions, getting the things done we need to get done, and not really taking the time to check in. And therapy is at the very least an hour or 50 minutes dedicated to just checking in. And at the very least, I think we all need that time. Okay, let's move on to question number two. Question number two says, hey, Katie, do you have any therapist strategies on how you would navigate a patient that struggles to speak in sessions? I have a lot of thoughts. I struggle making eye contact and speaking with my therapist on triggering topics. Generally, I shut down or dissociate. I tend to write in session, which has been helpful, but I'm curious what other avenues of therapeutic techniques would you explore? Hope you're having a wonderful summer. Thank you, you too. Now, there were comments on this. I'm gonna read through this first one because it's like, right in line with the the original question. It says, yes, this. I would love to know if there are other avenues as well. I can't even do the writing. When things start to either get triggering or hard, I go blank or think of things to say in my head. Um, and Oh, and in my head, I'm saying them, but I can't physically get the words to come out of my mouth. How do you get beyond that? We're working on EMDR at times, but staying in the window of tolerance proves challenging. Okay, so, and there's others, um, similar. There's two more comments, but we'll get to those in a second. Now, when it comes to my strategies, this might shock you, but it's not really the things that you do. We can do grounding techniques in the moment. We can try to count colors. We can try to feel you know, our legs on the chair and our back against the couch or whatever we're sitting on, right? Um, we can do things like that in session. And I think that that can be very beneficial. However, the thing that I find with my patients like this, at least the way that I think about it is I think we've gone too fast. 
Now, does that mean you can't process things? And that's what I'm talking about? No, it means that I've moved into this part of it too quickly. We don't have enough resources. And if you don't know what resources are, resources are ways to calm our system down. So maybe we need to do full body shakes before we even start. And maybe we need to take breaks and do those as well. I've done that with patients. I do that with myself. It's really helpful. Maybe that's something we try out. Maybe I have you bring in, and I'll say bring in in air quotes, because what I mean by that is like mentally bringing someone in, like a protector. Um, A lot of you are doing this work in your current therapy, but like bringing in a character or a person or an animal or like a mythical being or something into your session that's a protection. Now, that could be uh, a big brother. That could be a grizzly bear. It could be, I don't know, Harry Potter. It could be any, it could be the god of something if you, you know, believe in some, you know, I don't know, mythical god. Bringing in someone to protect you and imagining them there before session and during it can be really helpful. Then we can feel a little bit safer. I know it sounds kind of woo woo, but sometimes we have to bring in another thing or person in order to feel okay moving forward. And so I would try, like, we're going to have to trial and error, try out some of these different types of resources. Does this mean the writing is great, but that's more of like an in the moment thing. And I want you before going back into these triggering things, I would say to your therapist, hey, you know, I'm having a tough time staying in the window of tolerance. I'm having a tough time staying present. Could we build up some of my resources before we do that again? Your therapist probably be like, oh, yeah, of course. Because they might not realize just how difficult this is for you, or they may think that you're able to stay more present or have more tools than than you really do. And if one of these things doesn't work, you move on to the next, right? So it's not like we, oh, I did a body shake. It didn't work. I'll try it again next time. No, we can try them a few times, but we need to have others. We need to have things that work for us in the moment if we're going to get anywhere. And so I encourage you, instead of trying to find a way to manage when you're talking about triggering things, let's find some things to soothe our system before we do that. It's almost like you don't want to try to put on your armor when you're already at war. You want to do it before you leave to head out, right? And so that's what your resources are. It's like putting on your armor, 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 armor as you go to war. And so, okay, some ideas. These could be things like, uh, like I said, the protector or a nurturer, like other uh, resources we can call on, people we can bring into our sessions or into our old memories. That could be something animals. I've got my doggy sleeping behind me. They, they can be very um, calming. I used to have a patient who would bring her dog in when we talk about really tough things. She would just pet him as like a way to calm her down. If your therapist allows for that, that might be helpful. Full body shakes, uh, fidget toys, thinking putty, a favorite memory that you pull into, or even just the ability like using some mindfulness techniques, the ability to recognize when the trauma it's like starting to become overwhelming before we get to there. Like, let's say a 10 is I dissociate or shut down. I want you to be able to tell your therapist around a five or a six, be like, hey, it's starting to build. I'm about halfway maxed out. We do some tools. We bring it back down to a three. We keep going, right? We're gonna have to do that push pull. And it's gonna take, you know, some work on your end to figure out what helps and what doesn't. Also to get to know yourself. And like, maybe we look back on that last session and the things that made you shut down can we track back how that felt in our body ahead of time? So then we can use the resources, you know, earlier on. I hope all of this makes sense. It, essentially what I'm saying is you're at step six in your treatment. And I'm like, we need to go back to step two 
beef that up a little bit, then go back to step six. Okay. Now there are other questions on top of this that sometimes in therapy, I feel completely outside my window of tolerance. I'm able to quote unquote fake it. And so my therapist has no idea. But when this happens, I feel dysregulated for days afterward. And it's really hard for me to recover from sessions. So my question is, how can I let my therapist know when a conversation is too much? And how can I recognize that feeling in myself before it gets really bad? My best advice for you is to tell your therapist about the last time it happened and explain yourself because it's right now is going to be too difficult for you to do it in the moment. If you start to feel dysregulated or like a conversation is too much, we've waited too long. It's okay. We'll get better. But we tell them that this has been happening and we'd be curious, not judgmental about that experience and what took place. Because in that, not only can your therapist learn some maybe behavioral things that you do, or like, for instance, one of my, I had a patient, her telltale sign was lack of eye contact. She'd be making eye contact just fine. We get into a tough topic, eye contact would shift and it would never come back. It'd just stay over, away from me just a little bit. And sometimes it'd wander a little close and back again, right? I could always tell. Others of my patients grab their arms as they hold them tight to their chest, or we might even just physically tighten up. Um, so just, you know, your therapist will learn that kind of stuff. If you know some of those things, if you start to notice, please tell her. Now, another thing that's cool is because this has happened, we can go back and learn from those past situations, right? We can tell her about, hey, last time we talked about X, Y, or Z, I found myself shutting down, but I was like faking it. Like I'm really good at pretending to be okay, which is a defense mechanism and it got you through. So pat yourself on the back. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's not helpful anymore, right? We don't want to do it. So tell her about it and then consider in your own mind, go back to that day. Hmm. Okay. In that session, two sessions ago, God, I shut down what happened? What was the topic? And even thinking about this might be triggering. So give yourself some time to to go into it and out of it, trying to recall how it felt for you. Because our goal here is to get better at noticing the signs of this like dissociation or shutdown urge, like earlier on, because the earlier on we're able to identify, like, let's say some of my first indicators are that difficulty with eye contact. I like feel the urge to, to space out pull away. Or maybe I just feel my muscles clench. Maybe I start swallowing deeply. Like start to pay attention to what your body does, because if we can figure it out earlier back, then it gives us more time to start applying some of the resources and coping skills I was talking about before. If we don't have that time, we we just, we don't have the opportunity to help ourselves, right? Again, it'd be like putting on your armor when you're already at war. It's really difficult and you might get wounded in the meantime, right? Might get re-traumatized. So, We need to try to give ourselves as much time as possible to get that armor on. And it's going to be trial and error. It's okay. We're going to find have times where we still get dysregulated. But I hope each time that happens, we learn a little bit from it where we're like, oh, I guess I overlooked the fact that I do, um, I don't know, I do start fidgeting. Let's say that's a sign I, you know, shake my foot a lot or something, or maybe I start clenching my teeth or all of a sudden my mouth feels dry, right? We're going to have to learn about our experience and be really curious about it. Again, not judgmental. It's not perfect. We're not going to be able to say, you know what? I don't want to shut down anymore. I'm going to start paying attention and poof, it goes away. I wish it was that easy, but we're going to have to be, it's almost like we're students of ourselves, right? We're trying to learn about our experience and what we do because those things are happening. We're just not able to tune in. And so my encouragement to you is try to tune in, pay attention. Where do we feel that coming from? Then 
we can use some of our tools. Now, there's another question. Um, Oh, and so letting your therapist know, tell them about the past experiences and tell them you'll try to let them know, but you you, you struggled in the moment. And that's all you got to do because it's up to them. You could even say, if you notice I'm doing some things that you think are me, you know, getting dysregulated, please call me out or please let's try some regulation tools. Again, you can ask, hey, can we have more resources or tools for me to manage? Because I fake it and I don't know how to shut that down. Again, it's not all on you, right? This is a relationship. It's like 50-50 with your therapist in that way. A final comment says, hey, Katie, so far my therapist has used a sand tray, love it, various cards and drawing, which I couldn't start on either. I was also wondering what other tools she could possibly use or if I'd exhaust them soon. Also, what, um, what about working with a client who has selective mutism? Is it still talk therapy when little talking is done? Sorry, I have so many questions and thank you, Katie. No worries. So I've talked about lots of different tools. If some aren't working for you, next I have an entire video about coping skills. Now I've talked a little bit here about like resources, like things you bring in, like protections and nurturers or whatever. Um, That's going to be really key and it's primary. The secondary are going to be those distraction techniques or those other coping skills like impulse logs, journaling, um, like sand trays, puzzles, silly putty, you know, we're going to need all of those things. And so I think you know, coming up with those initial big resources, the protector, the nurturer, um, you could even have like a guide, someone who helps bring you along. Um, but any of those types of resources, that's what I'd want you to work on first. Uh, Alexa talks about it, I think in one of our videos about EMDR, because it's a huge component of the first chunk of EMDR is just resourcing, where we try to find, you know, different people, or like spirits or whatever to bring into the space so that we can call on them when we need them. And I'd encourage you to do some of that work. And then you can get into my 25 coping skills video because that will help you come up with maybe some other more like tangible things like sand trays and stuff like that. Now, there'll be tons of tools in there. Now, the the selective mutism question is interesting. I do not specialize in selective mutism, but for those of you who don't know, it it essentially occurs when our anxiety gets so high, we are physically unable to speak. We can want to talk, but we can't. And I know it's really hard for people to understand that. I've even misspoke in the past and didn't understand because I called on some colleagues of mine, unfortunately, that, you know, didn't believe that. And so, uh, but I recorrected that video years ago. But anyways, that's what selective mutism is. And I would assume, and this is just based on my knowledge of it and the way that I personally, like even just thinking about this, getting a client, how would I work with them? Because I have had clients who struggled to speak, not necessarily selective mutism, but like we're talking about earlier, the this shutdown kind of situation. And I build up the resources. So since selective mutism, mutism is anxiety driven, my goal would be to calm them down. So I might encourage them, like I said, to do full body shakes or to try coloring with me. I would essentially kind of treat it not in the same way, like not childlike in the therapeutic sense, but childlike in the way that we try to engage where, because kids aren't usually very comfortable talking. So it'd be more about through like play. So if it's an adult with selective mutism, do it through drawing and through games and through like even um, doodling things, right? Like showing me different things. Um, 
building things. I could see different ways that we could utilize toys essentially for, for a therapeutic process and, and also help my patient feel a little more comfortable because we all know how, how uncomfortable therapy can be. And if we're already struggling with selective mutism, it's doubtful that those first few sessions, if any of them are going to allow us to talk. And so it would be more play therapy, but I, I think people, I don't want people to assume because play therapy, I know sounds very childlike. And again, just because it's a child type based, you know, the sound play, doesn't mean that we can't use it in adults as well. Because I think there are ways for us to, you know, quote unquote, play in therapy and still get incredible benefits. So that would be, that'd be the direction I would take that. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, is it possible that trauma manifests in the body? Yes, you should read Body Keeps the Score. Amazing book. Also, my book, Traumatized, I talk a lot about body memories. I was physically and sexually attacked by a guy while I was running. And since then, my legs go numb when I go for a run, which is very unfortunate as running is my preferred coping mechanism for depression. I've been to several physicians because of this, but all the scans and evaluations came back negative. Could the numbness be a psychological thing? Thanks in advance. Yes, it could. Um, it's because running is a trigger because we're probably still concerned that we were, we're going to get attacked again. And so part of me, if you're not in therapy, I would encourage you to get into therapy. And I think we're going to have to do some exposures. Now, if you haven't heard of exposure therapy, it's essentially creating, first we, we create, we build up our resources and coping skills things to calm us down and keep us grounded. Then we set up a hierarchy of things that are scary and overwhelming. The lowest might be just thinking about going running, right? The highest would put running because that's the one we want to overcome, right? And little by little, like would be imagining that we're running. Maybe we start going for a walk, like just build our way up to it little by little and slowly do some exposures, meaning expose ourselves to that that hierarchy, to each one of those things. Maybe we do one a week or two a week, and we use those resources and those coping skills to calm us down. So what we're trying to do is slowly prove to our nervous system and our body again, that, okay, I can go running and it's not, I'm not going to get hurt, right? It, it's not going to happen every time this was a, a fluke. You know, we try to prove that it's okay because our nervous system believes right now it's having its trauma response that when we go running, we get assaulted. And so that's why your legs are going numb because your nervous system is so overwhelmed. It's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And it just shuts off. And it's like that disconnect. I think a lot of you out there would agree that when we've been traumatized, especially those of us with complex PTSD, when there've been a lot of different instances where we've been traumatized, we can feel numb all the time just because it's so uncomfortable to be in our body. And so doing those exposures and calming our system down, bringing ourselves back into our bodies is going to be incredibly healing. If you're not in therapy, I encourage you to seek out a trauma specialist or someone who does somatic-based therapies. Um, There's one called somatic experiencing, but there are a lot of different somatic treatments. Somatic really just means like in your body, in your senses, getting back into your body. And I would encourage you to focus on that because that's where your healing will happen. Okay. 
So overall, yes, the numbness can be a psychological thing. Okay, there was a comment on this that as an add-on, I was wondering the same thing about migraines lately. Ooh, yep. As there seems to be no medical explanation for mine. In your experience, have you found any correlation between migraine and trauma, processed or unprocessed? I've started to work on my childhood sexual abuse and some other traumas last year. Is it possible that they could be a result of triggers that I'm unaware of or the unprocessed trauma? They seem to have become less frequent overall since I've started therapy to a degree, but only after getting much worse. And then my flashbacks and memories came back at the early stages of therapy when I started to work through everything. Thank you for your channel and your help. Of course, of course, I'm so glad I could be here. Now, yes, migraines also. Even my girlfriend, Rocio, she would not be upset about me sharing this. When she gets super stressed out, she gets migraines, like one a week. It's horrible. They're debilitating. She has to take medicine for, I think it's like Imitrex or Imitrex or something like that. Anyway, but she doesn't like being on the medicine all the time. Um, My friend Kim is the same. She gets them also, um, again, due to stress. So yes, uh, our bodies, the thing that I think we often forget is that our bodies and our brains are connected. And I know if someone asked you, is your body and brain connected? You'd be like, "Uh, no doy. If people still say doy, I'm going to say doy. I'm just kidding. But like, no, no shit, Sherlock, right? Of course, our brains and bodies are connected. But then we, we forget, right? We so easily forget. Stress is the number one, like, and I wouldn't want to call it the number one killer, but it's the number one cause of other physical manifestations. Think of high blood pressure. Think of, um, we could even think of like nerves, like uh, muscle strain, I'm trying to think of other things, but like migraines. I have a a patient in the past who had horrible aches in her body due to her depression. So it's not just stress related, but that's just a good indicator, right? Stress is like the number one cause of issues for all people, I would argue, in our world. We're too stressed out. So we get irritable. We have anxiety, right? We have panic attacks. We can feel numb. We can faint. We can any number of things, right? We can like sweat excessively. There's all sorts of things because our brain and body are connected. And just remember that. So yes, if we're struggling, if we're having a hard time, especially if we're doing trauma work, things can get worse before they get better. And that can mean migraines or extreme muscle tension, achiness, uh, or achiness, sorry, achiness, achiness, um, feeling faint, you know, and cause all sorts of different things. Digestive issues. I've had a ton of patients over the years, and maybe it's because I specialize in eating disorders, but I even personally, if I get super stressed, will either not feel hungry or feel really hungry, you know? So it affects my hunger fullness. But a lot of my patients will even have like, you know, irritable bowel for a period of time or or have other issues. I've had members of our community who, because of constant trauma, have developed, you know, Crohn's and different things. And so just know that, yes, our brain and body are inextricably linked and having stressors or even processing trauma, it can at first get worse before it gets better. So hang in there and do know that there are good medical doctors and psychiatrists and other people, you know, specialists like neurologists that can help us manage those symptoms until we get through. Like my girlfriend, Rocio, she doesn't like being on the medicine all the time, but she'll take it when she needs to. And I want you all to know that if you are having some kind of medical complication due to a mental illness, that doesn't mean that we can't still treat the symptoms for a while until the mental stuff, like our mental health improves, right? And that's why it's important that we have a treatment team. We have different people we can call on, like our regular doctor, our psychiatrist, maybe a neurologist, our therapist, or, you know, we're going to need to have different people so that we can manage. And so, yes, I believe 
the first question is trauma manifests in the body. It definitely can. We can have physical symptoms. Can it lead to migraines? 100%. Yes. Um, and that's why when you first started working in therapy, they got worse and now they're getting somewhat better. And I, I think you'll continue to see that. Now, there was a final add on. It said, I experienced significant emotional neglect and witnessed trauma as a child. I thought I'd work through it with finding positive outlets and developing an amazing support network. I have a great husband and amazing kids and an awesome career. Since starting my own private practice as a therapist, my body stiffens and soreness has increased significantly. And I'm also finding myself rethinking childhood experiences in detail. Nothing else has changed. And my practice is not all traditional sitting across from one another. I'm not a great relaxer generally, although in client sessions I am. Could the body soreness and tightness be linked to my childhood trauma? 100%. Suggestions. P.S. I'm looking forward to your inner child workshop and believe that work will be helpful. And thank you for all you do. Um, love your realness and openness. Oh, thanks. And I hope the inner child workshop is, is helpful for you. I'm so ex- I'm excited to do it. It's going to be great. Okay. Great questions. Now, the thing about being a therapist that's interesting is when we show up for a patient and we're sharing that space with them and we're in session, we bring our shit in too. If there's stuff that still needs to be processed. And my hypothesis would be I have have twofold. Number one, there might still be some personal work that needs to be done and something in session has maybe triggered this or just being in session because, you know, we're showing up for people and we're in this vulnerable space. It could be triggering. Okay, so there's that potential. Second, and the thing that I want to just mention with everybody is it's been a crazy couple of years here. We're going on, what, two and a half years now since the pandemic started. And I know things have returned to like, quote unquote, normal, but the ripple effects of what we went through, they're still with us. And I sometimes have to remind myself and my friends, like this, like back to normal feeling and this urge to like, let's just pretend it didn't happen. I'm like, yes, because we all want our lives back. But no, because we just, we were in a trauma that sustained for a long period of time and we're burnt out. And I think a lot of us are more vulnerable to our our old traumas and upsets and old behaviors coming back. All that work we did isn't gone, but we're really, since we're so worn out and burnt out, we're more vulnerable to them in general, right? It's like we don't have as much resilience built up because we that we had the last two years that like cost us our savings, you know? And so be kind with yourself, be curious, not judgmental about why this is coming up. My, my guess is that some, some like something has triggered it. It might be because it's private practice and it's one-on-one. It could remind you of your own uh, trauma work. I don't know. Or it could be a certain patient and something, you know, Um, but be curious about it. Again, curious, not judgmental. Figure out where it's coming from for you because I find that things that show up in session, even if it's a session with a client, is really indicative of what's going on with me. And usually for me personally, it's an indicator that I need to either get back into my own therapy or have an extra session with my therapist, or even just do some deep journaling about where I think it's coming from and why this is happening. Um, Because, right, we can't correct what we don't understand. We can't just like make it go away. We have to get to know it and figure out what purpose it serves. So dig in and see what you find. And I think you'll, you'll, without a doubt, sooner rather than later, find yourself able to just relax and be there for your patients. And I'm sure you're a wonderful and amazing therapist. Even just doing this, having this awareness and doing this work just proves to me how great you are. So I hope that's helpful. 
Let's move on to question number four. And I think I got through all those. Now I'm worried I missed one. Nope. Uh, da, da, da. Okay, yeah, we got them. Question number four says, Hi, Katie. I tend to attach to older females in my life, including my therapist, but I have a mom who is very supportive and loving. Interesting. We have a good relationship, but I never really open up to her about anything that I'm going through. Not because she doesn't want me to. I just don't feel comfortable with it. Could my attachment issues be related to my superficial relationship with my mom? Side note, I haven't experienced any trauma. My therapist told me that I have some BPD traits, but hasn't diagnosed me since I'm only 18. Thank you so much for everything you do. Of course. Now, this is interesting because I hear this all the time. My parents are great. I love them. I don't know why, you know, I have these issues. It doesn't make any sense. Parents don't have to be, what's the word? Openly and outwardly shitty to not give us what we needed as children. Okay? So instead of thinking that our parents not giving us what we needed means they're bad, let's reframe this and let's instead say, you know, it's possible that my mom couldn't really show up for me emotionally in the way that I needed. She wanted to, but she has her own limitations, right? She's just a person too with her own failings and and things she should be working on or is working on or whatever, right? Like, um, you know, even my mom, she she's like my best friend. I talk to her almost every day, but she doesn't do well with things that are, I don't know what the word is, like out of control, right? Like if I like change things up really quick or don't want to do something, any conflict can really throw her for a loop. So she has her own limitations, her own stuff she's working on in her own therapy. She's a human too. And so instead of thinking just because our parents have limitations or things that they weren't able to give us that maybe we needed, thinking that that means they're bad or abusive, sure, there could be abuse in there. I'll get into that. But that's not always the case. Sometimes what it is, is that their emotional limitations just happen to be the things that we needed most And therefore, we go out into the world because we're so resourceful, good on us, right? Pat ourselves on the back. We go out into the world looking for someone who can give us the thing that we needed. That's why inner child work is actually beautiful and, and effective for a ton of people. Even though I know a lot of us think it's like only applies to trauma, it applies to a lot of us, okay? So all that being said, let's dig into this question, make sure I answered it. So attaching to older females in life, I believe is because your mom emotionally couldn't meet you where you're at. It couldn't offer you the support that you needed. There's a reason that you never really opened up to her. Be curious about that. Is it because maybe she poo-poos bad emotions? Like, oh, you know, like put on a happy face. Let's shake that. Let's get out of the house. I don't want you to be down. Instead of saying, what happened? Did somebody hurt your feelings or what's going on? Tell me about it. You know, there's a time and a place for both, right? We don't need to wallow all day, every day, but there's also a time to acknowledge and validate emotions. And it's possible maybe your mom wasn't comfortable with that, or I don't know. I'm obviously making things up, just hypothesizing with you, but be curious about why you didn't open up to her. There's a reason. It's not like you just chose like out of spite. It sounds like she's loving you have a good relationship. So why? What led to that? That'll tell you because I just, I assume that that connection is what you're looking for in others. And that's just how we go about things. It's, it's, it's you trying to be resourceful and get your needs met. Now, yes, attachment issues could be related to the superficial relationship with your mom. And when we don't get that emotional connection that we so desperately need, 
that is childhood emotional neglect and that is actual abuse. Now, I know you're saying I haven't had any trauma. I hate to tell you, but that is a trauma. I know we the word trauma is so stigmatized and people assume it means this big thing or it's got to be, I don't know, we have assumptions about what it should or shouldn't look like. But I'm here to tell you that the the something missing is just as powerful and just as abusive as if something was is added. Meaning the fact of not getting those emotional needs met is just as abusive as being hit. That's what the add and the, t- the not there. So I just want you to know that those that's all abuse. And it sounds like trauma to me. Okay. Um, and that, that'd be where your BPD traits come from as well. I think a lot of that attachment because it's, I would argue, probably been complex trauma because it's been throughout your life. Okay. Again, just because they do bad things or things they can't show up for us in the way we need doesn't mean that they're like outwardly these horribly shitty people. It just wasn't what we, they didn't give us what they need, what we needed because they weren't capable. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, when is PTSD or mental illness considered disabling? Is there a set of qualifications that therapists use to determine that? Or is it very case specific? There are qualifications, at least in the state of California, when someone was applying for disability, right? Because you can get disability through the state and through the federal government, and that can make it, uh, can allow you to take time off if you need to go to treatment, or maybe you just aren't able to keep a job so you can go on to disability more long-term. There is both short-term and long-term disability. I'm not going to get into the differences between those. If you're interested, look into it in the area which in which you live. But when it comes to PTSD and mental illness being disabling, it's really down to your functionality. That's really how I would figure it out, or I guess identify it as disabling or not. That's how the government does when you're applying for it. And that's even how the DSM and ICD-10 kind of listed out. So overall, what I mean by that is, are we able to function in our life, in at work or school, in our social life, and in our regular basic like upkeep, personal upkeep, like personal hygiene? Are we able to feed ourselves, drink enough water, get enough sleep? Like how are we functioning in our life? And if our mental illness is making that impossible, then it's it's disabling. We are disabled by it. We cannot function. And so that's really those those are like the, you know, quote unquote qualifications. It's more just about like, can you do what you need to do? How impaired are you by your mental illness? Because if we think about the even the word just like disability means I'm not able. So what are you not able to do? And if it's because of your mental illness, then that's that's it. Now, there's a comment that says, as an add-on, are there some mental illnesses that are considered disabilities and others that aren't? I've been told that my PTSD is a disability, but not my anxiety. Is there a difference in the mental illness or set of criteria as mentioned in the initial comment or question that makes it, it so one is a disability and not the other? Or are they both considered disabilities? Also, what even defines something as a disability? I hope this all makes sense. Thank you so much, Katie, for all you do. I think I answered a little bit of this, but Let's dig into that first question. Are there some mental illnesses that are considered disabilities and others that aren't? No. Again, it's all about our functionality. So are we able to do things or not? Are we disabled or are we able, right? And so that's really the crux of this. However, there are some diagnoses. I can think of some like um, some of my patients who are schizophrenic, they have a higher likelihood of struggling 
to function just because of the severity of their mental illness. Now, I have plenty of schizophrenic patients who do great, hold jobs, have families. It's managed. Uh, There's even a woman, I think it's the center that cannot hold. I think she's the one who wrote that, but she's a lawyer. She has schizophrenia and she talks about it. It's a beautiful TED Talk. I really encourage you to look that up. Anyway, um, long story short, any mental illness can be a disability. The reason I would assume they said your PTSD is and your anxiety is not is just because of your functionality. So they are, I'd assume they're attaching your inability to function to your PTSD, not the anxiety. And I would, I would agree with them to be honest, because I think the anxiety is actually part of your PTSD, but that's just me. And so I hope that answers your question. There's not a certain group of mental illnesses that aren't disabling. It really just depends on our ability to function and how impairing that particular illness is to us and our life. Okay. And then the last, um, yeah, they both consider, we talked about that and what even defines something. I feel like I've, I've uh, defined that as well. Let's move on to question number six. Says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Says, I've noticed that as soon as I get one symptom under control, the other symptoms get stronger. Isn't that annoying? For example, one of my symptoms is that I generally have trouble keeping my apartment tidy because my depression tells me that I don't deserve a nice apartment. In the last week and a half, I've been able to clean my apartment from top to bottom, and I currently feel comfortable in my apartment. Yay. Although, or maybe because, I currently feel very uncomfortable, other symptoms such as self-harm and obsessive thoughts strongly increase. Is it normal that other symptoms get stronger as soon as you get another symptom under control? And what can I do so that the current symptoms don't get out of hand? I feel like I'm in this vicious cycle of different symptoms, and I don't know exactly how to break out. Thank you so much for all you do. Danke Shane. And greetings from Germany. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, hello, hello, hello. Okay. As I used to say when I was visiting my friend in Bremen, Germany in the morning, we would say moin. And I know that that is definitely regional, but I still want to say it. So moin. (laughs) Okay, good questions. Now, things, the reason symptoms come up and down like that, like one's under control and the others are out of control is because we're just swip swapping coping skills. Your uh, urge to have a tidy apartment and your self-harm urges and obsessive thoughts are all different ways for you to cope with something bigger that's going on. I... It could be, you know, trauma from your past. It could be a bigger, I don't know, another issue going on in your life. Maybe we're going through some tumultuous time or we've had a big adjustment, like a job change, moving, divorce, something like that. I don't know. I'm just, you'd have to tell me more about what's going on. But that's why you're just swip swapping and one gets stronger and weaker depending on how much we're engaging with the other. So in order to stop and get out of the cycle is we have to come up with some other healthy coping skills. And I know you're saying, Katie, keeping my apartment tidy has nothing to do with this. And should I just be able to do that? Sure. But I believe this tidiness ties into that obsessive thought, perfectionism, because it's not like, oh, I just kept a, a t- my, my apartment is like cleaned up. You said top to bottom. So I think there's some kind of like obsession slash perfectionism, maybe some OCD in there that's causing us to like have to really fully clean and keep it clean versus I just need to put my dishes away. I need to make my bed, you know, like what I would call like a quote unquote basic upkeep, not deep clean, but you'd have to let me know. I might be off base, but because you said obsessive thoughts strongly increasing, I'm like, uh Oh, I think we're just swip swapping these things. So 
we need to have some other coping skills. I would encourage you to head over to my video, 25 Coping Skills, and pick some of the process-based ones, pick some of the distraction-based ones. They'll all be helpful for you. We're gonna need a variety. And when you have the urge to like deep clean, again, you can do basic upkeep. But if we're wanting to like, I need to pull everything out of this closet right now, I need to go through it. And it's not, my apartment's not kept if I haven't done this, right? Or I need to mop all the floors and scrub all the grout. Like give yourself a minute, there are times for deep cleans, but I think we're just focusing on something so we don't have to focus on something else. And I I think that my biggest encouragement would be to try doing some of those impulse logs. I have them, if you have my book, Traumatized, they're in there. Um, I also talk it out in my, um, in the 25 coping skills video, but I really write about it in detail in my book, Traumatized. So if you can get your hands on one of those from your local library or something, I'd encourage you to do it. You can also go to selfinjury.com, I think. Let me look it up really quick here. I should have had this up. Uh, yeah, it's selfinjury.com. And then you go into resources and you can scroll down to impulse control log. It's the very top one. So you can find it that way. But I think doing those impulse logs will help you kind of figure out what else is going on when we feel the urge to self-injure or when we feel the urge to deep clean our apartment or whatever obsessive thoughts you have. What else is happening what's going on for you. That's what I'd want to know. Cause I think in there, then we have, then we'll have more answers or more ways to add in those healthy coping skills. So if I'm really feeling lonely and that's, what's driving these impulses, can I connect with someone, even if it's through, you know, crisis text line or on a messenger, maybe it's an Instagram, we can talk to somebody or can I get together? The best would be to get together with someone in person. Can I do that? Okay. Well, if I'm feeling tired, can I make sure I go to bed a little bit earlier tonight? Right. Just considering where these things are coming from, what emotions are coming up from us, what experiences are we having that are causing us to be more vulnerable to these urges and impulses. And then we get to choose if we want to do something else. Okay. It's harder. I know it's easier said than done, but you'll get there. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, Hey, Katie, is it possible to knowingly develop a restrictive eating disorder in a week? Hmm. I have body image issues often on Oh, I've had body image issues off and on my whole life. I'm 27, but I always told myself that I don't have enough willpower to develop an eating disorder. Interesting. I recently told my therapist that I unintentionally hadn't eaten very much that week. She expressed concern. Then I purposely doubled down on restrictive eating, body checking, frequently weighing myself like never before. What's going on in your life right now? Hmm. I'm very curious. Okay. I have lost an unhealthy amount of weight in just one week. And I rationally know that my behavior is unhealthy and my thinking is distorted, but I don't feel capable of stopping. And I'm already afraid of losing control and binging and gaining weight. I always enjoy the feeling of proving myself wrong by using my willpower to restrict. Interesting. My therapist knows all of this and asked me to eat three meals and three snacks one day before I see her next. (laughs) I'm not laughing because she's wrong. I'm just laughing because I don't think she's an eating disorder specialist. Okay. Um, It feels impossible. It makes me anxious. Of course it does. I don't think I'll follow through. This has all happened so quickly. I don't even know if I'm eligible for treatment or what kind of treatment I need. Do I even have an eating disorder? Does it have to get worse before it can get better? And what do I do about not wanting to get better? Thank you. And I'm so sorry. This is so long. That's okay. This is very interesting. Let me get a little drink of water there. Get prepared. Here we come. Okay. So you've had, 
I would argue some eating disorder stuff going on your whole life. When you said you have body image issues, I'm curious what you mean by that because I have a feeling that we probably uh, played around with some disordered eating. We probably have a lot of judgments around food and probably had a lot of judgments around food for a long time. Might even have like an unhealthy uh, addiction or attachment to exercise and earning food. I think that's probably been going on for a long time. So I would argue that you've been flirting with an eating disorder for a really long time. And I say flirting because in order to meet diagnostic criteria, more stuff has to be going on, but you definitely have one now. And I personally would have, you know, I still think it's an eating disorder, even when it doesn't meet criteria. You guys know I'm that way because just, it's like, just because a a flower hasn't bloomed yet doesn't mean it's not gonna. And I'm like, let's treat it now, get it before I go, you know. I don't want it spreading seeds anywhere and making the things bigger and into a bigger deal. We want to nip it in the bud, right? So when it comes to this, yes, you can s- slide right into an eating disorder within a week. I had a patient who I saw at the an inpatient eating disorder treatment center that I worked at for like a year and a half out of grad school. And it was the first job I had. Um, she, or I guess my second, technically, let's not get into the logistics of it. Anyways, she had like, quote unquote, only had an eating disorder for a month. She had been assaulted and then just decided to stop eating. Now, hers was a very clear and direct like this happened and she stopped. But I will tell you that I have a feeling there was already some kind of stuff going on because there's a reason that we reach for that coping skill and not something else. That's why that's why I'm curious what's happening in your life right now. What has triggered this intense restriction? What's going on? And how come we've, you know, quote unquote, lost control spoilers, we never have control over eating disorders, just throwing it out there. It just tells us that we do. Um, But it's a faux control. It's really running the show. So anyway, um, something happened, something's going on, we're feeling overwhelmed, maybe we had a trauma memory come back, maybe we're finally working on trauma, maybe we've had an adjustment, something's happening in our life, I don't know, some something. Um, And I think we slid right into this very comfortable, already accessible coping skill. And yeah, so yes, it can slide into a diagnosable eating disorder within a week, honestly, within a day. Well, I guess I don't know what the treatment criteria would be. I forget how long because I don't always think that they're correct. But let's say, you know, a month or something to meet the criteria. I don't know how much it is. I'd have to look back. But I know even for like, uh, for bulimia nervosa, I think it's like in in a week or two. So either way, yes, I believe you have an eating disorder. Yes, I believe you've like flirted flirted with one for your whole life. And that's why you went to this. And the fact that you're already afraid of losing control, you don't have control, by the way, what you're doing isn't control, it's already out of control. Um, Don't let your eating disorder lie to you, because it always says that this is under control. It's because say it with me now, eating disorders are coping skills. And we want to focus on this and quote, unquote, keeping control of this instead of focusing on the other thing that feels out of our control completely. That's the interesting thing about eating disorders and why we use them is because something else is happening that we legitimately have no control over. So what do we try to control? Our bodies. The only thing that we can 100% like do things to without anybody else's input. We take control over what we think we can control. And unfortunately, eating disorders quickly, it's like a forest fire. It quickly gets out of control. So yeah, anyways, okay. And are you eligible for treatment? Yes, obviously. Um, You're in therapy and you need support and you aren't able to eat 
three meals, three snacks for one day, that's too much. I don't know how much, what level you'd need. That'd be something I would talk with your therapist about. My brain goes to like day treatment. Um, unless you're able to go inpatient for a month and then go out to day treatment, I don't know what your life is like and what you're able to commit to this. But I honestly think that if you've lost weight, because I try to think of how, how insurances work. Um, I don't know if, if weight wise you would, you know, meet the criteria, but if you can be diagnosed with, with bulimia or anorexia, that's easy coverage. And the fact that at least 90% of your brain space is taken up with thoughts of food, I think we could get you into an inpatient, um, but a day program could be great as well. Yes, you have an eating disorder. So do I even have an eating? I'm just going through the questions. Does it have to get worse before it can get better? No, it doesn't. But it's always hard at the beginning. I want to be honest with you. When we've been giving into these types of behaviors and and numbing out, when that, that uh, I don't know, it's almost like emotional lidocaine. We remove that emotional lidocaine. We're still left with how we feel. So I want you to know that, you know, it's going to feel shitty at the beginning, not because things are getting worse, but because we've taken away the one coping skill that was helping us numb out from how we were feeling. Does that make sense? And so we'll feel what we didn't want to feel. And so it feels like it gets worse before it gets better. Um, And what do you do about not wanting to get better? Just talk about it. Be honest. Nobody wants to get better at the beginning and that's okay. I think, you know, unfortunately it's kind of like a misunderstanding or like a and maybe I've perpetuated it too, and I should probably be more vocal about it, but it's very common, like 99.9% of my patients don't want to get better because it's the only thing that's helped. And we think that if we don't use our eating disorder, X, Y, or Z is going to happen. It's going to be terrible, right? That's how it keeps us held in its, uh, you know, faux control, right? Again, why it has control. If we had control, we could just stop right? Like all the ignorant statements about like, just eat food or just stop eating so much. Or I don't know, just don't throw up like people who don't understand. If we had control over our eating disorders, we could just do that. So it's a faux control. Okay. Um, That's it. It does get better. I promise you getting help sooner rather than later is going to be really important. Um, Yeah, you got this. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday and hope you're well. You too and happy Thursday. My question is, how do I recover for myself instead of for others? I thought that I'd realized I cannot recover for anyone except myself. But when my therapist went on vacation for two weeks during a time when I've been going through immense transitions, including a new job, an apartment move, mom being in the hospital, et cetera, I found that my eating disorder, which had been in a a sort of remission, came back full force. We didn't have any other coping skills, right? It was seriously like a switch flipped and overnight I was back to engaging in behaviors that I thought I'd left behind. I'm so sorry. Relapses are common. It's okay. We're not back at square one. We just slipped up. Get back up. Dust yourself off. Continue on. So that made me wonder if I can embody recovery when my therapist is present and apparently not while she's away, am I really doing this for me or for her? Okay, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to read the rest, but hold, pause for a second. It's not about you doing it for her or for you. She was your support system. You have a lot of stuff going on, right? New job, apartment move, mom being in the hospital. Holy shit, man. That's a ton of transitions. That's a lot of adjusting. And guess what we need when we adjust? A shitload of coping skills and supports. And guess what you didn't have? Your main support pillar, your therapist. 
it's not about doing it for her, for you. You needed her and she wasn't there. That's not her fault. It's not your fault. It's just what happened. It's the timing of it all, right? She couldn't be there for you. And so you use the one coping skill that you can always lean on in the past, and that would be your eating disorder. Does that mean you're not recovered? No. Does that mean you had a relapse? Yes. Are relapses common? Yes. Can we get back up and try again tomorrow? Yes. Each day is a new time to start over, start fresh. So tomorrow I encourage you, you get up, we have our breakfast, we start a new fresh day. We try to make those choices like we had to do. I know it can feel like I did this a while ago. That's okay. What worked back then? Because it'll probably still work now. Let's use those tools. Let's pull out those resources. Let's distract like a motherfucker. Keep pushing through every meal and snack. You'll, you'll get back on track. We just didn't have the support when we needed it. Okay. So I don't even think it's about recovering for yourself versus for her. It's the fact that you needed that support. Okay. And the second, there's more to this says, and if it's for her, at least for the time being, is that such a bad thing? No. If it gets me to recover, it's not bad at the beginning. It's almost always that way. I have tons of patients over the years who, when we can't come up with a reason to recover for ourselves, we come up with other reasons. We just need a reason to recover. And as we do the healing work, we can, that reason can become ourselves and our lives and our hopes and our dreams. But at the beginning, I would say it's like never that way. It's always somebody else or something else that we can like hold on to, you know, to keep us motivated. Because a lot of times when we're deep in our eating disorder, we don't really value ourselves. And so it can be really hard to connect to that. I know that she will not always be there for me and that she has her own life to take care of. So I don't want to put the burden of my recovery onto her. You're not. I'm just not sure how to get past this or at least bring it up with her without seeming like I'm blaming her or saying that she shouldn't have gone on vacation because she definitely deserves a take time off. For context, I have complex PTSD, which frequently manifests as attachment issues, super common, a generalized anxiety disorder and an eating disorder. Sorry, this was so long and I hope it makes sense. It totally makes sense. Um, Let her know that you know, with all this shit going on, you struggled to regulate and use your tools when she wasn't there. And I would just express that in the way of, I need some other supports. What can we do here? Like, I'd encourage you to check out Hope for Recovery. I think it's hopeforrecovery.org. They offer free groups. There's eating disorder groups and trauma groups that they offer. We just need you to have another pillar. So we have our therapist. We just need another support system. They offer free groups. You can get in line for when they open up new ones if they don't have any available right now. But we just need you to have another another thing you can turn to because therapists do deserve to take time off and she might not pick up that one time when you call because she has a life, right? And she'll get back to you. But we're gonna need to have more than one pillar. That's all this is. I don't, I'm not trying to say that's all by minimizing it. I'm just saying it's very normal. It's okay. You're not putting all this on her. You're not, you know, back at square one in your recovery. Remember that. We just, we had a relapse because she wasn't there and we have all this shit going on and our coping skills did not stick. So I would be more curious about why the coping skills didn't stick and what are some others that we can try out? Because we want to make sure that the next time something happens, because life happens, right? That we're more prepared. So instead of looking at this and like shaming ourselves or blaming ourselves or feeling guilty over whatever, let's just try to improve so that it doesn't happen next time. We can learn from it. What kind of tools or resources could we have used that would have been better for us? You know, you'll get there. You got this. Okay. Question number nine says, hi, Katie, I really enjoy your podcast and your approach to explaining issues. I'm so glad. I'm I'm a relatively healthy 62-year-old divorced man with dead parents and grown children. 
I still work full time, but personally, my friend pool has diminished considerably and I spend a lot of time alone. Most days I spend time wondering if what's left for me in this life is really worth it. And that concept seems to bother me a lot. I consider myself to be a survivor of a 15-year-long narcissistic abuse period in my early 40s until my mid-50s, and I'm trying to put that behind me, but I'm failing to move on. I think I might have several symptoms of borderline, but that never seems to rise to the level of disorder. How do I tell the differences between seemingly common effects that everyone in my situation has versus whether I really need to seek help? That's the thing is that we all can benefit from help. And surviving narcissistic abuse, you you need support. We need to get you into therapy like yesterday. I would encourage you to reach out and seek support that as soon as possible. Because this uh, diminishing friend pool, I would argue has something to do with that. A lot of people who struggle with PTSD can be more hypervigilant and it can be difficult for us to let people in and connect without either trying to push them away or uh, maybe ghost them, like not even tell them, just not reply, or even just lash out. If, if we struggle with like irritability and aggression because of the abuse, again, because PTSD makes us feel like we're constantly under threat. We have to remember that. And so it can feel safer to be alone. But then when we're alone, we're like, well, if now I'm fucking lonely, right? And that sucks. And so I would encourage you to reach out and speak up because you do deserve help. All of us can benefit from therapy, but definitely with the narcissistic abuse in our past, we're going to need to heal from that. And that could help you manage any symptoms of your PTSD that might be pushing people away and help you re-engage with some maybe old friendships that we want to rekindle or possibly starting some new ones or maybe even getting in touch with your children a little bit more. Whatever it is that, you know, you're wanting to do, I want you to feel like you can. And so getting into therapy, talking through, you know, the things that you are going through. Also, you're in that transition time in life where, you know, we talk about like earlier in our life, there's so much support and talk about like going to college and the transitions. Oh, it can be really trying and people can be stressed and there's free therapy at college and all this shit, right? We have all this stuff set up and I know it's still hard. I'm not trying to minimize that, you guys. I went through it. It was hard. But we at least have some resources set up for that. On the flip side, when we're transitioning out of our work life, right, we're going to retire. What does that look like? How do I still, what am I going to do with all my free time? How do I still engage with people? How do I meet friends, right? I know as an, an adult working for myself, it's hard to meet people. Most of my friends are people who work in YouTube too either YouTubers themselves or people who work at YouTube or Facebook or something like that, because those are the people, those are like my colleagues, right? And it's hard to make new friends as an adult. And so getting into therapy is going to be incredibly beneficial. It'll probably help you re-engage with society in the way that feels the best for you and also heal from that abuse in the past. So people have effects on their life and everybody deserves therapy and especially you, okay? Final question, question number 10 says, hey, Katie, how can I move on and stop obsessing over someone who dumped me? Oh, I'm sorry. While we were dating, everything felt so nice and mutually, oh, and mutual till slowly he became distant and then ended things. I loved his personality and our connection felt great. And I feel I'll never find someone like that again. We don't know that. Don't let your brain go down that hole. That's just, it's not helpful. 
and when things just seem to click and I can't stop thinking about him. I also fear I might end up all alone. Wow, we've really spiraled out. Okay. End up all alone. The feelings of loneliness are overwhelming at times. What can I do to move on and feel better? How can I work on myself to deal with that? Okay. Couple things. Couple therapy things, couple friend things. Okay. Therapy things are it's important to grieve the loss. People talk about relationships all the time, and we think that we can only grieve when someone dies, but we can grieve all sorts of losses. Uh, losses of a job, losses of a friendship, a romantic relationship. They're not in our lives anymore, and we miss them, and we have to grieve. So that might mean that you write letters to him that you don't send. Don't send those letters. But you write letters. You cry about it. You be, you know, get grateful for the things that it made you realize maybe instead of focusing on the negative, because our grief brain wants to focus only on the negative, instead of letting it spiral out into that, what if we're grateful for what it gave to us? So maybe we consider like, you know, that relationship affirmed that I can and I am lovable, right? I know we ended, but there was a period where we were very close and that proves to me that I I can have that kind of relationship, right? Because you really, his personality, your connection, for you, you would have still continued the relationship, which means you can have that kind of relationship again because you already had one, right? Look at you doing so good. Some people are dicks and it doesn't work out or possibly the connection we felt didn't go both ways, but we cannot, you know, change that, but we can learn from it reframe the breakup as as a time or a reminder that love does exist and it exists for us and we can find it right because we found it it happened okay so grieving reframing those are my therapy tips okay my friend tips and it's kind of ironic or like i guess punny a little i want you to hang out with some friends Relationship shouldn't be, romantic relationships shouldn't be our only relationships. Friendships are where it's at when it comes to healing and moving past a breakup, a loss. When we're grieving, it can help personally to like vent about the asshole. I know you don't think of him that way right now, but I'm just saying like vent to your friends and be sad about it. Let them take you out. Let them listen to you cry and talk while you watch reruns of your favorite TV show together and eat takeout. I mean, that's what I did when I was going through stuff like that. And I think it's really healing and helpful to not be doing it alone. That connection's incredibly soothing to our nervous system. Now I'm kind of back into therapy, Katie. And it can be incredibly healing as we process the grief, okay? Give yourself time. It's okay to be sad about it. And then, you know, engage with people. Go out with your friends. See people. Do not isolate. Because isolation will only lead to more rumination because there's only so much we can distract with. The best distraction is to get out there and socially engage with others. So call up that friend, you know, apologize for disappearing when you were in a relationship. We've all done it. It's not good, but we do it. Tell them you're, I'm sorry, I'm an asshole. I'd love to see you. I miss you. When can we get together? Make those plans and get out and do it because that's the best way to move on and feel better is to engage with other people, to be reminded of what life was like before this person entered it. Because guess what? You had one. You were doing just great. So let's find let's find that life again. It's still there waiting for us. We just have to pick it back up. So get out there. That's really, that's my friend advice. Get out, have some food, have drinks if you drink, you know, whatever, chill out, hang out with friends, vent to them, cry to them, 
maybe go dancing. I would dancing always helps me. <laughs> and what and back to the therapy work, I've always found it helpful for me personally that I mean, I go through almost like the stages of grief where I'm angry at first and I want to blame them for everything and call them every name in the book. But then I also have to look at my role in it. So like it ended, why do I think that happened? And we're not going to like try to guess. The One of my biggest pet peeves as a therapist and as a person is when people try to guess what other people think and feel. I'm like, you can't. They didn't tell you. You don't know. That just is like, ugh, gets under my skin. So let's not pretend. Let's know about the facts of what happened. What do we think our role in this was? What are some ways that we we would have preferred to engage? Were we too maybe dependent on them and we need to have like, you know, a broader support group or support system with our friends? Is it that we uh, were we overshared on our emotions? Maybe we didn't have any boundaries and we just overshared everything too quickly and it scared them away? Or maybe did we not share at all? I, I'm just thinking up some possibles. Um, Consider your own role because that can only help you going forward in your other relationships, you know, and it's not that we have to always learn something from every failed relationship, but I feel like if we don't, we're missing an opportunity for growth. And so take some time and consider your role in that breakup and what you think made it fall apart. And how can we improve that for our next one? Because there will be another one. Trust me, you. everybody always thinks I'm never going to find someone. Of course, well, thank God you're not going to find another one like him because he just like distanced himself and cut it off. We don't want that. We want someone to stick around and be with us and truly connect with us in a real way in the long term. So you got this. You're going to find another great partner. It's going to be wonderful. Spend time with your friends. Remember who you are without a person attached to you on your own. That's important. You're just as valuable and important more so on your own than in a relationship. So let's get back and let's get to know her again because she's still there. Okay. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for listening and watching. Please share this podcast. If you find it helpful, please give it a review. Those five stars really help. I will talk to you all soon. Bye. (laughs) 